0: You are listening to You Might Have a Point. Each week, I bring on a different guest to discuss politics and related topics. The point of the show is to get to know more about what the guest believes and why, which is why we primarily discuss their own views and not my own. I believe in learning about a broad range of viewpoints so that even when you disagree with someone about a lot of things, you can still sometimes say, you know, you might have a point. You can find out more at youmighthaveapoint.com. I am pleased to welcome to the podcast today, Jamie Weinstein, independent journalist and host of the Jamie Weinstein Show. Jamie, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: So where I like to start off each episode is just asking, how would you describe yourself in terms of your ideology or worldview?
1: Uh, You know, I I describe myself probably these days as a Burkean conservative. Uh, uh, I'm a big believer uh, in Burke and kind of being uh, try to be non-ideological, which doesn't mean I don't have... Uh, strong views of, of the world. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I think it's important uh, to um, have some modesty of, of what we know and what we can know and mm-hmm. uh, to hear out uh, arguments from others and not be so uh, stuck uh, into, uh, you know, absolute truths that you, that you, you might think, you know, particularly uh, on, uh, on subjects that I think are um, you know, still open to debate. No one has fully solved economics. No one has fully solved a lot of these things. Uh, and oftentimes, uh, these are 60-40 issues. Uh, so mm-hmm. I think you should carry yourself with a little epistemological modesty uh, mm-hmm. when discussing a lot of uh, subjects in the political realm.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think one of the things that I'm pretty strongly Committed to is the concept of small L liberal democracy, but there's a broad range within that, right? Um, that you can uh, uh, have lots of debates over. Still, um, so uh, I think, I think
1: that, the key aspect to me of that is the, the small L liberal part mm-hmm. of democracy. I mean, that was a, a big issue. Uh, I remember during uh, when I in my college days uh, when people kind of misused the term democracy. Uh, you know, it's not just people voting, it's kind of the, the, the pluralistic values that come around that, mm-hmm. that, that are important. And that, that used to be a you know, big issue when we would talk about uh, democracy in the Middle East. What, what does that mean? It doesn't mean one vote just holding an election. It, it's the, it's the, the values and the- um, Institutions. You know, like the liberal institutions exactly yep. that uh, are fostered uh, in those societies are as important or more important um, in any society as mm-hmm. the building aspect of it.
0: So I'm most familiar with, uh, your podcast. I've read a few of the things you've written, but that's kind of, I think your main work now is the podcast. Um, so how would you describe the approach that you take there?
1: Well, you know, I, I try to, uh, it's a really, I think, a, a, an interview show, but it does foster some conversation. I try to bring people on of all ideological persuasions and, um, I uh, ask them questions, a lot of them thematic questions I ask everybody, but also uh, questions that are particular to the guest that is on. Um, and I try to both ask questions uh, that uh, give us a little background about the guest, but also questions that I think that, uh, I think should be asked of them that haven't been asked of mm-hmm. them. Uh, and, and sometimes, uh, you know, not the type of question they want to be asked uh, about, but I try to do it in a friendly manner. Uh, and, uh, you know, so far it, it's turned out pretty well, usually when you lower the heat, I think sometimes on the way you ask a question, it makes it more difficult for people to avoid answering a question.
0: Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Um, I guess one other aspect of your show, which I think is fairly unique is that, um, like you said, it's most, mostly an interview, but also a conversation and you don't necessarily hide your view on things. I was wondering why you chose to take that approach.
1: You know, I'm just not very good at hiding hiding what I what I think on things. And you know, I, I have, uh, you know I began my writing career as someone from the right, so I, I didn't you know it's I don't think it, it makes sense to hide the ball there. I mean, it's mm-hmm. out in the open. Perhaps it would have been a smarter strategy, uh, a career strategy. Um, but but uh, you know, I, I'm I'm I, I don't have a problem uh, you know admitting to the the interviewer that I may agree or disagree with them. Um, And perhaps that fosters them to let down their guard Mm because they know where I'm coming from. But uh, it's a good question. Um, uh, But yeah, you know, I I think I'm pretty open with my audience uh, of where I'm coming from. And I think, uh, you know, it's just the approach I've decided to take.
0: Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of benefit to not having any ideological pretense at neutrality, especially in today's day and age when it's so polarized. <laughs>
1: um, you see it a lot. Yeah. I mean, it, it's hard not to watch some of the, the, the uh, people in media sometimes. A lot of them are my friends, uh, um, but also those who I know who you know where they come from ideologically and they, 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 it's sometimes a false middle that they're, mm-hmm. they're tending to be neutral and I, I'm not saying you can't do your job and be neutral with an ideological perspective, but I do think sometimes their viewpoint bleeds into their coverage and it, you know, that you're trying to act like you're being neutral when you're really not. And, and um, it, it really, I mean, there, there's a larger discussion to be had. What is the better approach? I mean, there's the American model where we do have, you know, publications that at least try to say they are neutral and not political in any way. Any of the British approach, which have newspapers that, you know, self admit that they are from the right or the left, but still try to do journalism. Um, I used to probably be more on the British approach, but, you know, I I don't have I don't think a strong view of it now. I I do see benefits uh, to both. But there is something about letting people know where you're coming from and then letting them. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean. I think it's interesting that Dispatch has sort of staked out a space of being center-right, but they're open about that, um, whereas uh, other organizations, like you say, don't claim to take a stance on things. I guess my thought would be is that if you're going to try to claim to be neutral, you need to explicitly hire from all sides, because otherwise, you're probably going to end up taking one side to the other, whether you realize it or not.
1: Yeah, I, um, I do think that there's uh, unintended... Uh, even it's not intentional oftentimes, it's just... Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of biases that are, are, you know, that exist because perhaps the only people you hire come. And if you listen, people listening want to listen to a podcast I do with Ben Smith, my first one, not the, the second in the group, where I discussed this with him, you know, there is a, a kind of a groupthink that occurs when you hire all, you know, people with the same backgrounds. They may be diverse in other ways, but if they're all mm-hmm. coming from the Ivy League or they're all coming from the Northeast, you perhaps you. Uh, you know, or maybe they're all atheists or they're all non-religious in a certain way. Uh, it's not an intentional bias, but there is a bias because you just don't know anybody who thinks a certain way. And therefore you don't think of questions that, that you might ask if you had people around you that were, were, uh, kind of, uh, of, of, different, different views, maybe more religious or something along those lines.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, one other aspect of this is distinguishing between reporting, opinion, and analysis. I guess there, those are like what I think of as the three sort of categories. Um, and sometimes <laughs> it's hard to tell which is which, right? Um, uh, do you think that the media does a good job today of saying this is a reporter or this is an opinion host or this is an analyst? Um, uh, do you think they need to do a better job of that? or
1: So... I answer this two ways. One is that I don't think the media always does a good job of that. Sometimes they do, and, and um, I'll give you one example. This is my I, another episode I did with Brian Stelter, where for some reason uh CNN has decided to take the tack that they refuse to admit that their evening hosts are opinion hosts, particularly Chris Cuomo and Don Lemon. It's just obvious they are opinion hosts. Maybe they have the right opinion. I don't i mean, I'm not even arguing <laughs> that they're wrong, but it's just obvious that they're opinion hosts. And, I spent a long time in my conversation with Stel- Brian Stelter just to admit what is the obvious fact that they're, they're opinion hosts. And I, and I do think that undercuts his criticism of Fox and elsewhere. Some of the criticism is very strong, I think, but mm-hmm. it that's uh, what they're saying is when, you know, if you're, if you're not admitting to your audience, your own audience, uh, that there's opinion on your network, uh, that a host is an opinion host when he's obviously an opinion host. I mean, I don't know how you can criticize others uh, opinions when they actually right. are saying that certain people are opinion. Um, so I don't think the news always does a great job of that. But I'd also say that I do think the public is not itself educated, uh, uh, and, I, and maybe that is because the media hasn't educated them. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think we have a news consumption problem where a lot of people probably couldn't even tell you the difference between you know you know the difference between Tucker Carlson and Brett Baer, or mm-hmm. you know the difference. You know, or John
0: Stewart. <laughs> you.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, I I do think I do think there there is a news consumption problem with with the American public as a whole, and not just between the difference between news and opinion, but the difference between you know a crank site uh, and uh, a news site, even if it's a, a news, an imperfect news site. Let's mm-hmm. say you think the New York Times is biased in a certain way. I, I think the New York Times is a great paper. I think it has a lot of biases. I think there's things that could be corrected there, but there's a clear difference between reading something from the New York Times and reading, you know, Infowars or something. I just don't. I, I'm not sure the public can tell when they go on the internet. Not all the public, obviously, mm-hmm. but large swaths of the public, you know, the difference between you know a credible news site and and, and a not credible one. And I, I think that's a very very serious problem.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. Um, my wife is a former high school teacher and. That was one thing that she tried to drill into her students um, because they're getting everything they get from online sources, basically, and um, it's difficult to tell when it's just a you know random Facebook post could from come from like you said, intro Wars or New York Times or National Review. Um, so uh, I think that's something we need to do a better job of <laughs> instilling uh, for sure. Um,
1: Seriously,
0: yeah. Um, so I wanted to move now to. Um, in- Impeachment. Um, I was just wanted to get your thoughts, uh, basically what you think uh, should happen and then what you think will happen.
1: Well, I, I thought the first impeachment and this impeachment mm-hmm. justified. And I'm not saying, as someone who thought that Trump should be impeached for anything when he came in, I didn't think after the Mueller report that there was enough there to impeach him. I think there, you know, people that wanted to impeach him for obstruction of justice, I think there was a credible counter argument that what he did. With the Russia stuff, what looked like trying to shut it down was because he was upset that it was tainting his win and Mm -hmm. and made it look like he didn't, you know, he didn't really win in 2016 or he didn't. It wasn't his own persona that won, but someone helped him. And and, uh, so I didn't think there was enough there. There was some disturbing stuff there, but I didn't think there was enough to impeach him. I thought the first impeachment. I I was traveling at the time. I read the the call and. So On the transcript alone, it seemed obvious to me that was uh, uh, an abuse of power. Yeah, yeah, an ab- abuse of power, so obvious. And you know, what I, you know, what I will ask on my podcast, I haven't had any anyone on um, that would be good to ask it yet, is you know, how would they justify if they didn't think the first impeachment was worthy impeachment, criticizing or condemning or or stopping Joe Biden from calling any country where Donald Trump. Or his sons have done business and asking the leaders of those countries to investigate the business dealings there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, uh, and by the way, uh, you know we've provided you a lot of aid. We'd love to continue to do that. I really hope you cooperate with us in in launching these investigations. I don't know what argument um, you can use to justify uh, uh, saying that you know you Biden can't do that if you if you didn't think what Trump did was an abuse of power. Uh, And and I will add um, that, uh, you know, a lot of people's counter argument is, look, you know, Hunter Biden is now under investigation. So, you know, Donald Trump's been vindicated. The argument, at least my argument was never that Hunter Biden was innocent and therefore no one should ever investigate him. It was that the American president should never be the person who is, you know, asking for a, a an investigation of an American citizen, much less a, the son of a political rival? It's the Department of Justice's job to to do that. If they want to launch an investigation, fine. The president shouldn't be calling world leaders and asking them to investigate any American citizen, again, much less a, um, a political rival. Now, taking to this impeachment, you know, if this is not impeachable, I don't know what is. I'm not a constitutional uh, law expert. I don't have a law degree, but I you know, have read enough arguments to be able to determine what I think is, is, is the better argument. It seemed very clear to me that the better argument is that you can impeach in the president, and certainly he was impeached while he was president, right. but you can impeach a president even after, uh, you know, he left office, and certainly you can hold a trial uh, afterwards. I think that's clearly, to me, the better argument. Um, I think that he should be convicted. I think he should then be barred from ever serving again. I don't think at this point I thought I held out a small hope that that was going to happen. I, I you know, after 45 or 50, uh, 45 Republicans said that it was unconstitutional. I think they're all going to not even listen to the arguments or consider mm-hmm. say that, you know, they're voting on the fact that they think this is an unconstitutional process. I think that will come, potentially come back to bite them if Donald Trump's the nominee again, and maybe the president again, and they're going to say, Oh, whoops, you know, uh, but I, I think it's clearly impeachable. I don't know what is um, impeachable if inciting. And it's not just the same day. I mean, I think that's also a clear point that needs to be made. It's not that he, you know, it was just that he gave a speech on the day of January 6th and people stormed the Capitol. Because I think I've seen an argument that, well, people were planning this beforehand, so it couldn't have been just the instigated. It was delaying laying the groundwork that this was a... a, a uh, uh, that he he didn't lose the election that it's been stolen from him and giving credibility to the, mo- the craziest conspiracy theories because if that is really true if he has really been, if there was really this grand conspiracy to steal the election from Donald Trump well you know what might be justified if that's the case and and you know I, I think that whole process from November second onward uh, including the speech he gave that day including lying about what the possibility that Mike Pence could actually do to stop mm-hmm. this um, was a grave abuse of power. Uh, and I don't know if it meets the legal term, because this is not a trial right. in the criminal sense where he could be, you know, prosecuted for instigating uh, in, in a court, but certainly it, it meets the abuse of power. Uh, you know, what we, what we mean by abuse of power in, in you know, high crimes and misdemeanors mm-hmm impeached, which he was, and then convicted and removed, not removed, but barred from serving in office again.
0: Yeah, I think I agree with that, except I might want to quibble with the word incitement, because I almost think that distracts, like you said, from the larger question of just lying blatantly. Um, because uh, I think if, um, if it were a criminal trial, I'm not sure, based on my understanding of the law, that it would be a conviction. But again, it's not a criminal trial, it's a political trial. Um, So,
1: yeah, I I would add though, you know, the incitement, you know, I'd like to hear the rest of your argument on incitement, but, you know, Mm -hmm. people who are now suggesting Donald Trump did not incite Mm -hmm. uh, January 6th, I'd like to, you know, run the transcripts of what they have been saying about Al Sharpton for years uh, because of his show on MSNBC. How could you allow a guy who incited violence in Brooklyn that caused the death uh, in the 1990s uh, how could you allow him to have a show? They use the, the, you know, that's the same in my mind, very similar inciting here, mm-hmm. uh, use of incitement. In fact, Joe Scarborough uh, put into Congress in the nineties, uh, you know, used the word. Inci- Al Sharpton incited violence to condemn Al Sharpton when he was in Congress. So, you know, if people are now saying that's not incitement, um, you know, they might want to revisit what they what they used to say about Al Sharpton.
0: Yeah, no, I don't know anything about Al Sharpton, and- and again it's just a my argument would be that i think legally it has to be pretty clear explicit instruction to commit uh, violence or an illegal act um and i don't think his speech was that um i think his demeanor is always to walk up to the line and to dance around it um and i think that's the whole problem with Donald trump uh but uh I, I personally, if I were writing the draft um, uh, of impeachment of the article, I would not use the word incitement. Um, I think it's a small thing. I still think he should be convicted and removed. But um,
1: yeah, I mean, I, I take your point and I, and I don't, I don't it's, it's a good one. Again, I don't think, I think you're right that if this was an actual criminal trial, like, mm-hmm. you know, after he's impeached and removed and, and they brought charges against him, I don't think they would bring charges for incitement because I do think. There's a very high standard. It's also the way he speaks is a very, you know, it's, it's very mafia in a certain sense. Like, he, you know, yep. he's, he alludes to things and he, and he creates caveats and he doesn't pull it back, yep. you know, he, uh, but he's not, you know, as you said, he goes up to this line and allows these things to fester. And there's a different standard though, I think for an impeachment trial. Right. Uh, and for that, I think uh, he meets it, the term incitement. And I understand what you're saying. Um, Uh, what's the name of your podcast again it's uh, you might have a point point um, (laughs) but uh but i i don't have a problem though with you them using incitement yeah because i I think it's it's not just the day of and i know this again probably Mm -hmm. the standard of incitement it's everything leading up to it as well
0: Mm -hmm. yeah i think one going along those lines one criticism i might have of the democrats and the way they approached it in the house was that apparently they didn't give hardly any time at all to Republicans who wanted to speak on this, and they didn't work closely with them to draft that language. And I think impeachment is a political process, but it doesn't have to be a partisan process. And if it's a partisan process, you're almost guaranteeing that he won't be removed. So that's just one thing I, one additional thing I would say about that.
1: Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. Although I think some people... Uh, have used that, especially in the first impeachment. That was the argument John Bolton gave for not giving testimony, which I never quite understood. I, I mean, I had him on my podcast to talk to him about a lot of things. We brought it up briefly, but um, I always thought that was an out that he he thought that it wasn't large enough that, that they weren't they weren't acting in a, a uh, you know a sl- a slow enough pace to bring Republicans in and looking at a larger a larger set of fact patterns outside of. Mm-hmm which was a little bizarre because, you know, if he knew other fact patterns outside of Ukraine, you know, he could have raised them. I, I, mean, right. I don't understand why he didn't do that. And, and again, this is a long time ago, the first impeachment. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, I mean, you got, I understood the, the time problems that Democrats had. There was a Democratic primary, uh, presidential primary coming up. Did you want that to suck up all the oxygen uh, in a primary that you hoped would emerge, have a candidate emerge that would beat Donald Trump? Uh, is that fair to ask that you would suck up all that time in a, in a an impeachment process when it seemed unlikely you would you would get enough people to convict and house Donald Trump? So I I don't think you can put those concerns aside.
0: Okay, um, so I want to go now to uh, I guess what you think of uh, Joe Biden. Uh, generally in his presidency so far, Um, I guess my first question would be, I've heard him described as a moderate Democrat, and I'm not sure that's quite how I would describe him. Uh, What do you think?
1: Well, certainly, I mean, I I don't remember him ever being described that way up until recently. Mm -hmm. Um, I will say that the way he ran in the primaries was not an ideologue. It was someone who really did run at least you know, the way he ran, it's what I thought was a goal of trying to unite the country, try to bring normalcy back. He didn't, you know, find his positions on Twitter or change his positions because of Twitter. Uh, he really ignored kind of the, the, the Twitter sphere and, and against a lot of the political wisdom at the time and tried to speak in a way that was unifying. Uh, and I still think he is doing that. I think a lot of things that he is you know, done executive orders on are not things that I love. Um, I do think it's too early to judge his bipartisan outreach. I, I, I don't know where that's going to go, um, but I do think it is you know, too early whether he's gonna to listen to, even though he might not be a moderate, there are certainly people far uh, to the left of him that want uh, things to go a different way and not really uh, do any of this unity and bipartisanship uh, Tack that he that he at least rhetorically talks about. Uh, so I think it's too soon to see which direction he is going to go with that. Um, I suspect I'm going to disagree with him on a lot of different things. For instance, I think uh, you know I think the Trump administration's Iran policy was genuine generally right. If Joe Biden just jumps back into the Iran deal, I think that would be a mistake. It actually seems that he is so far not. Jumping back into the Iran deal, that there might be some conditions. So perhaps there's hope there. Um, so I guess my answer is that it's too early for me to judge exactly if he's going to try to govern as, you know, seize his mandate as someone to try to bring the country together. Um, I'm, I'm certain that he'll have policies that I disagree with, as any Democrat would. Uh, but I think they're going to be within kind of the normal bounds. Normal bounds of things that I disagree with, um, so I'm I'm open I'm open to uh, I'm open to see, seeing where he goes from here. Certainly, again, uh, some of the executive orders I don't love the way to, to govern via executive order. I don't love some of his executive orders. I think the Keystone pipeline thing was insane. Um, I, that's tacking to the your left wing base. It just seems crazy to me that you would do that. Um, but it's early and, and, and it'll be hard to judge him, uh, you know, in, in the first month.
0: Yeah. I think one aspect of this, it's always hard to know what the president himself is seeing and reading, um, and how much of it is guided by his surrounding administration. Um, because I think, uh, I, I honestly have no idea how to tell what he thinks. Like I've seen tweets from his POTUS account and I'm like, uh, did he really write that? Yeah. You know, I don't know. It. Uh, it's it's difficult to judge. I think you have to judge by the policies, I guess.
1: No, I, I I totally agree with that, and in fact, uh, you know, I haven't written much in in, in a while. Um, but I, I was thinking of writing an op ed that uh, he should appoint a and a, a a unity czar, but really a cons- really you know, I'm using that as a larger term. He uh, uh, should have someone who's a conservative, maybe a never Trump conservative, someone of good faith that you know uh, you know wasn't radically against him just in the room to give him what maybe the counter argument is in case he's not getting it or, or what, he might, you know, what type of policy maybe you're able to bring in some Republicans without alienating too much of your base or doing small things that, that might um, help bring unity without turning off other parts of the liberal base. I, mean, you know, I didn't look too closely into it. He did something with opioids where he stopped some program. That's become a very big issue obviously on the right. That him needlessly angering, you know, the right without, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I have to look closer at it, but it seems like something, that's an issue that a lot of conservatives, uh, Tucker Carlson, for instance, he always, you know, it's an issue that he's really he thinks is very important. Uh, you know, there's an issue where you might be able to, uh, uh, do something that would bring in some support from the right without alienating other constituencies. So I think it would be good to have somebody, uh, you know, in the room or occasionally there just to give him a rundown of, you know, you know, a counter argument, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, not necessarily advocating for it, just to give him, you know, this is what the counter argument is, if you want to consider it, or this is something you might do that I don't think would alienate the left of your, the left of the party. But I think conservatives would give you credit for, it, or good faith conservatives would give you credit. Right. I think that would be helpful.
0: No, I, I absolutely agree. I guess my, criticism of the left broadly is that they too infrequently take conservative arguments seriously. And a lot of times I think, you know, studies have shown that um, a conservative is more likely to be able to accurately represent the liberal position than vice versa. Um, And that was one of my main criticisms of Obama um, was that he sort of had this veneer of paying respect to conservative arguments, but not ever really taking them seriously. Well, I that, hope, that's
1: you know. true, right? Because, you know, I, I it's been too long, but it hasn't hasn't been forever since I was mm-hmm. in college. And college is full of mainly liberals, and you rarely have conservatives. But those conservatives who are especially politically engaged hear liberal arguments all the time. So they have a, a very good idea of what the liberal argument is, whereas, you know, most College professors and students probably rarely hear a cogent and strong conservative case, um, and so it makes sense that a a liberal probably would be less likely able to formulate a strong conservative the strong conservative argument, whereas vice versa is not not necessarily the case.
0: Yeah. Um, so I guess I wanted to get your take on, uh, specifically this COVID relief package, as you said, I think it's too early to judge, but this is kind of a big, um, at least for people who are politically attuned, um, to the, to the news, it's a big test. I think of whether Biden is willing, how much he's willing to work with Republicans. Um, so far it looks like Democrats are moving forward with the reconciliation process where they would not need, um, any Republican votes. Um, but at the same time, you know Biden has met at least once, I think, with um, these ten Republicans who were proposing a counter-offer. Um, How do you think that's going to play out?
1: Well, it seems like he's dropping the minimum wage part of it, which mm-hmm. was you know opposition to by, by uh, Republicans and Joe Manchin, which maybe mo- be more important if you don't have Joe Manchin on board, you really can't do much. Um, it seems like you should be able to get a Republican on this, at least one. so mm-hmm. I, I I think it's worth, uh, you know, trying to do that. I think it'd be good for the country. Uh, I don't. If he, if he, my my sense is that they're going to get a bill passed, and he hopes to get some Republicans on board. But you know, he's not. He's not not going to try to get this through reconciliation if he doesn't get Republicans on board. You know, the areas of compromise seem to be like one is, you know, no longer the the the. Uh, the minimum wage, the other one just seems obvious to me is the, the, these checks that you can narrow who gets them. Right. Uh, and I think they're, they're doing that. Um, it's still gonna be more than the Republicans proposed. I don't know if it will be the 1.9 trillion that Joe Biden is proposing. If you can get, you know, maybe if you meet in the middle and you get a few Republicans on board, I, you know, I, I really don't know. Because uh, I'm not really reporting it anymore these days, uh, you know what what the likelihood of of that is. Um, but it seems to me that you know getting rid of the minimum wage, narrowing who gets the checks, um, is is uh, pretty. You should be pretty close to something once you do that.
0: Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, I'm wondering how it will affect um, things moving forward in this Congress because. If you do see some bipartisanship, it uh, makes presumably makes senators more willing to do bipartisan things in the future. Whereas if you don't at all, then it, I think, will sour um, the relationships early on, which, you know, I just as an American who wants to see Congress function, <laughs> would be really disappointing.
1: Yeah. And 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 I think it would be a mistake not to really try. Um, and I know the counter argument from Democrats is that this is, you know, this is a road to failure. You're, you're just not going to get anything done. I do think that the, you know Mitt Romney I think is genuinely would love to to see if he could come to a deal with the Democrats. Uh, and I think there's others that that would both on COVID relief. I think I, I think that beyond COVID relief, there's a lot of topics where bipartisanship is possible. You know, the next big thing apparently is transportation uh, and infrastructure. I think there's a lot of Republicans who could could come to some sort of agreement on infrastructure, um, so I, I do think that you know there is bipartisanship there. Obviously, you know in the maybe you're not going to get a comprehensive immigration bill, but I think there's a Dreamer bipartisan package to be to be passed. Um, I'd like to see a comprehensive immigration bill, but, but I've seen that show a few times before, and, and it doesn't hasn't worked, and it doesn't look like it will work. From what I've read this time, uh, but I do think that you probably can get some pieces of a uh, immigration some pieces of what was the comprehensive immigration bill through, particularly like the Dreamers. Mm-hmm. But I do think there's areas for bipartisan cooperation, um, and I think you might be right that if he doesn't you know get some something here with COVID relief, then perhaps it sours it for for the other areas. Um, I actually I think Joe Biden has a has the potential to be a very important president. Mm-hmm. He he you know really if he can bring down the temperature in the country, work with Republicans and show that you can get some things done in a bipartisan fashion, um uh, you know get a handle on COVID, uh you know put the infrastructure in place uh that that we need upgrades in this country. Uh I'd love to see an immigration comprehensive immigration bill uh, to get that issue uh solved finally uh, and you know those you know that first term alone just describing there domestically um especially if you bring down the tensions and you get republicans involved and you show that you know that, that republicans and democrats can agree on certain things uh and compromise uh i think he would be remembered very well as someone you know you know, after Donald Trump, after an insurrection on the Capitol was able to take the reins of government and bring America back to a place where we might imagine ourselves leading the 21st century again.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's the, the most optimistic case and one that I would hope for as well. Like uh, you seemed, uh, you know, less optimistic. As you mentioned, we've tried comprehensive immigration reform for a while. And I sometimes think that the American public is cynical about the wrong things and not cynical enough about some things. Meaning I think it's, you might make the case that it's in many Democrats and Republicans interest to not get comprehensive immigration reform done because they can continue to use it as an issue in their campaigns. Um, What do you
1: think about that? I think that's right. I think people people have also, unfortunately politics pervades and Mm -hmm. Marco Rubio to his credit, I think the first time put himself out on a limb, but from the, I've seen a few comments about uh, immigration, his view on immigration in this Congress, and it seems like he's not as willing to do that again and, you know, wants something much more narrow mm-hmm. uh, and perhaps that's someone who wants to, he believes he needs to be more, uh, you know, tempered in his view on this in order to win re-election in Florida or to win a, a Republican primary if he runs again, it's unfortunate, um, but it, I, I, you know some of the, you, you would need some of the players in the past to come back to the table with their zeal to get something done. And I'm not sure in the early stages I've seen a lot of people jump up and raise their hand and say, "Send me, let me let me be the yep. Republican face of this immigration bill."
0: Yeah. Um, there are two other features of congress which make me uh tempted towards to be despondent one is i guess the centralization of power um people like justin justin amash have just lambasted um the people in congress for continually putting more power in the hands of the speaker or the senate majority leader and then the other is uh what jonah goldberg has called the part uh parliament of pundits uh where basically the incentives are always to just um get on what uh, get get fame um, through making outlandish statements to raise money for your campaign. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene being the most extreme example of that, I think, um, but AOC as well. Um, not that they're the same, but uh, I think she is an example of someone who uses media and strong claims to um, to basically just. I don't. I don't know. It, it, the question is, what are you even in Congress for? Um, uh, they. So I don't know. It, it doesn't make me hopeful, but at the same time, I think. There are some other signs of uh, to be somewhat optimistic, as you've said.
1: Yeah, I, I think those that, that those two points are right on. Congress has continually uh, given up its power to the president. And you would think that perhaps the Trump presidency would made uh, even Republicans want to reverse course there on trade. You know, he's taking policies on trade that at least traditionally or not the policies yeah. the Senate wants. You think that may perhaps they claw back some of those powers. They didn't. Uh, but I just think Congress doesn't want responsibility, so they, you know, prefer to criticize a president for making mistakes than take that, take you know, power back and then, you know, be 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 themselves responsible for certain policies. I think it's a terrible, a terrible problem, but I don't see a solution to that. Uh, your second point: we used to say, are you a show horse or a workhorse? We seem like mm-hmm. we have a lot more show horses these days. And you saw, uh, was it Madison Cawthorn or the guy from- Cawthorn, the- yeah, I think so. I mean, he said explicitly he's hiring for, for a TV uh, uh, yeah. kind of career uh, on Capitol Hill.
0: Yeah, Hi, you're referring to the fact that he hired all communication staff yeah. and no policy staff or even, even constituent service staff, um, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's it's a shame. I mean, obviously Matt Gates is a prominent example of that. Um, yeah, it's, 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 you know, there is obviously benefits to, you know, building your platform uh, in order to uh, gain influence, because then you mm-hmm. can get influence for your constituents. But it seems like the goal of a lot of these people is to get a TV gig. And in fact, we've seen some cases of that. Jason Chaffetz left Congress early to go to Fox News. Um, so it, it, the incentives, it's both in the media and in politics, are very bad right now. And the, one of the incentives is it's much more profitable, or, or both politically and later, perhaps economically, uh, uh, to get a TV gig to, to, you know, be a TV congressman rather than an actual
0: congressman. Mm-hmm. One other thing I just thought of is uh, people have suggested bringing back earmarks and it uh argument against them was that they you know tended towards corruption and just bringing home pork to your own district but the argument in favor of them is that it allowed uh the wheels of congress to be greased a little uh in order to move towards more effective legislation what do you think about that
1: yeah you know i don't have a i think it's you laid out the positions pretty well it's Mm -hmm. you know six to one half a dozen of the other um You know, I'd probably be favor bringing them back in order to get things done. You know, if you have to build a dam in an area in order to get a bill passed or something, so be it. Um, You know, uh, as you said, um, you know, sometimes, you know, spending a little bit to to help constituent services and to get a congressman something he wants back home Mm -hmm. is very uh, inexpensive to get larger things passed that would be good for the country. Uh, I, I don't have a, the truth is, I don't have a strong position on it right now. I haven't thought about it in a while. I used to think about it a little bit when I, w- I was uh, first started here as a, uh, a fellow at Roll Call newspaper, which is the, the paper of Capitol Hill. And mm-hmm. these questions were a little bit more pertinent at the time. Um, but I, I don't actually have a strong position on it right now. I'd have to think about it again.
0: Okay. Um, so I want to move now to uh, ask you about, uh, I think what you said. Uh, well, here.
1: Here's something that yep. is. Similar, I I, I always like Thomas Sowell's idea about paying congressmen more. You might get better yeah. congressmen. I mean, it'd be very cheap to pay a congressman a uh, million dollars a year, or even two million dollars a year, uh, and then you might get uh, a better quality congressman willing to run for office. Um, you know, uh, I always thought that was not, not that what they make is so little, but if you're if you're, mm-hmm. if you're having to maintain two homes which a lot of them have to because you have your home in the district and a home in dc um and if someone can make more money going into private industry or something perhaps they do that instead of going into congress but if you can make it a pretty lucrative you know you make a lot of money becoming a congressman perhaps you'll you'll draw a better class of congressmen because frankly the people in congress lots of them are just you know, you wouldn't hire them to run a Seven Eleven, much less, but you're hiring them to run the country, which is, which is insane.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I think uh, I, I know for the Virginia legislature, it's a, it's a part-time job, but even as a part-time job, they, they pay them, I think like, I don't know, $20,000 a year or less, maybe not even that much. And I've just, always wondered like state laws matter too. And what do we expect? Like you basically have to be a lawyer who's making a lot of money on the side in order to even function as a legislator, which that's another one of my pet peeves is I don't think we should have so many lawyers in uh, any legislature. Um, yeah. Well,
1: uh, I think it, the, the type of person drawn to law is probably the same person that's drawn to politics, argument and things along those lines. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, they're certainly over-represented, over representative, right. over, over and uh, represented in uh, Congress for sure.
0: Yeah. No, I, I think, you know, one way I would, I definitely think that you'd, you would it's, it's fine to have lawyers, but the overrepresentation makes everything be an argument. And if you treat everything as an argument, then you're not willing to see things as like, you know, I'm a software engineer. And so I think of more pragmatic solutions to problems as opposed to always winning an argument. Um, but anyway, that's just a rant. Um, so I wanted to ask you, I, I think you've said your favorite interview on your podcast so far was with uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates. So um, it, could you explain a little bit about that?
1: Well, you know, obviously ta uh, Coates is uh, you know, a very well-known writer, very controversial mm-hmm. in some circles writer, someone who I didn't, you know, uh, didn't often agree with. Um, but when I actually was preparing for his, his uh, podcast, I watched more of his videos and I think I got a better sense of him mm-hmm. uh, than I had before. And I actually quite liked him. And I, and I honestly thought that a lot of, he, he hadn't given many interviews with people that disagreed with him. I, I don't think, I'm not sure it was intentional because he, he, he was very gracious and open to doing a podcast with, with me. Um, so perhaps there were, haven't been many people that asked to do an interview. Mm. With him. But you know, you got I, I felt that you had a lot of people on the right that after kind of really looking into most of his writings and listening to a lot of interviews that mischaracterized him. And then you had people on the left mischaracterize what he was actually trying to say. So you know I think it 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 was, it was you know when you have people that I think they make better podcasts when you have people that disagree yep. and that are actually engaging in good faith and I think that's what we had uh going on during that podcast is that uh, I think he was being genuine and and I was genuinely asking questions not to win some you know political points or something like that, but you know challenging him mm-hmm. and and uh i i learned from it and I think, uh, I think he enjoyed it. I know he did because he originally gave a time limit and then I said, you know, we're running up our, on our time. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll stop the, you know, I'll go right to the closing question and said, no, 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 let's, let's continue. Uh, I, I, think, uh, I think we benefit when we have more conversations across ideology with smart people who are acting in good faith. And I think that's just very rare. Uh, and perhaps because the incentives aren't there. I mean, if you have a cable news show and you have someone on who disagrees with you, the, the goal often is to like score points and get mm-hmm. a viral TV moment. Um, you know, and I understand that. But I think there's, there, for me, uh, you know, I really enjoyed it because I think uh, I think the audience learned. You know, I, I, I get this a lot sometimes when I have people on that people don't like or disagree with. They, they say that they listened to the episode and, you know, they hated the guy coming in, but now they, they kind of like them. And, and I got mm-hmm. that with the Coach one. I've got it with the Tucker Carlson one, uh, ones uh, from people that disliked, uh, disliked Tucker. Um, but I think Tana Kasi-Coach is deeper than a lot of people on the right want to give him credit for. And I think he's, he's making different points than some on the left uh, want to think, think that he's making. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I, really, I hope one day I'll have another conversation with him, but, but I really enjoyed
0: the conversation. Yeah, no, I uh, I enjoyed listening to it. I think you're absolutely right that those conversations are rare. I think uh, the New York Times wrote a little bit about it, um, and they also said pretty much the same thing. Um, and uh, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's a sad reflection um, of where we are, but at the same time, um, I, I, it did give me hope because I think these conversations are... Uh, uh, they are possible to have um, and and they 're more interesting, like as you 've said like if if just a podcast of people agreeing with each other, well, we already have cable news for that um, or shouting each other, yeah, so and, and yeah.
1: podcast is the format where you can get them i mean he, here 's the reality um, for for your listeners listening I mean I, ask them to think about it i mean if you 're a cable news talk show host, your you know, reason to be is to be the person who knows everything. So you can't have a genuine conversation when someone disagrees with you where you're, where you're maybe letting on that you don't know everything and that mm-hmm. you know, perhaps there's things that you know, this person's saying that, that might be right. I mean, when Sean Hannity has someone on his show from the left, which he does, it's to like own them. And
0: yeah, them dunk and, on them,
1: yeah. sometimes like if they're friendly and they're laughing, but the goal is not to ever admit he has a point. The goal is to you know, mock a position or, or something along those lines. You know, I think Sean Hannity. I've done Bill Maher a couple times, and I, and I think they say they've asked Sean Hannity to be on, and he never wants to go on. And it's obvious, like why would not Sean Hannity want to go on that? Because you're not in control. Like you're not in control of the format. You, you don't have full control of your environment, and you might uh, come up, uh, you know, getting a joke made at your expense, or someone trying to. Uh, you know, turn the tables on you and now you're, you know, making, looking like a fool a little bit. And your whole persona is that you know everything. And and, and why would you want to be in a vulnerable spot like that? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's unfortunate nature of the incentives in, in the cable news. I, I will say maybe less so now, and I have profound disagreements with Tucker, but, and, and I think Tucker's smarter than Hannity, so maybe the reason he would do it but I think Tucker is more willing to do something where he is in a in a position where someone uh, is interviewing him that disagrees with him Mm -hmm. perhaps because he thinks he's smarter than that person and is able to to glide around it or something along those lines I mean it's a very Mm -hmm. Ted Cruz effect Ted Cruz is willing to go on almost anywhere to to give an interview because he's smarter than the person he's talking to that no matter who he's talking to he'll be able to you know glide around their questions and not Mm -hmm. Um, but generally a lot of, a lot of people, especially in cable news, you know, don't want to be put in that vulnerable position.
0: Yeah. I think if you're a practicing politician, you can always evade the question. Um, so, uh, I, d- when it comes to politicians, at least I don't expect them to ever give an honest answer. Um, <laughs> but if, if, yeah, you, when it,
1: with you, it's easier to do over a short interview, mm. you know? uh, but if you're there for an hour on a show or an hour and a half. It becomes harder to do to to just evade everything um and if you are just evading and not giving answers it becomes even clearer Pretty obvious yeah giving the same common you look kind of foolish
0: yeah so how much of an audience do you think there is for this kind of long longer form conversation i've watched jonah goldberg and he said you know when he's had progressives on he has gotten some listener feedback that was positive, but he's also gotten like very negative reviews saying they only want to hear conservatives. So I'm just curious. Um, like, as someone who likes this thing, you know, I named my show. You might have a point, but like, how much of a broader segment of the American public that is is the kind of person that's willing to entertain these kind of conversations?
1: Answer: Short answer is I don't know. Mm. Obviously, you know, it, it makes more sense to have a Ben Shapiro type. Show than a you know show where I do interviews with people across party lines. I mean, for some reason, people like to listen to either people talking. Re- usually, it's reaffirming their views more than more than anything else. Um, I don't understand that personally because I find that really boring. But but obviously, those type of shows do are doing doing better. I do think there's a space for it, and. Um, for the last several years, I've uh, been working uh, on a TV project, which we've gotten close to getting picked up a couple of times to attempt. It's not quite like a one-on-one interview show, but it would be a different concept of an interview show, um, where I think there would be an opportunity to be both interesting and a little, a little bit more in depth. I, I, you know, my hunch is that there is a larger audience out there than people think, but uh, you know, the model that works works, and people don't really want to deviate from the market
0: sure. um yeah so one of the things specifically in that interview with codes that came up a couple of times was that he wasn't talking about um the kind of racism that's individual malice but i um, talking more about systems and um you know, like systemic racism has become more common of a phrase um and as i mentioned i'm an engineer so i i think in terms of systems and how they interact and so i, I guess i kind of have an appreciation for that even though i'm more in line with your worldview than with Coates, but um, I guess I'm curious how did how did that kind of description of the way in which things can be racist or have disproportionate effects racially um, come across to you?
1: So I haven't listened to the podcast in a while. I, I think mm-hmm. he brought this up at least in part uh, in his book. He uh, 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 I forget which one it was, uh, but he talks about a, a cop who killed a friend of his. Mm-hmm. Um, And it turned out the cop was, was, I'm not sure he says it in this book.
0: In the interview, it's discussed that the cop is black. Yeah.
1: The cop is black. Yeah. And, and a lot of people, Chris, and I bring up the question to him, Mm -hmm. you know, how can that be an example of, you know, racism when, you know, the cop was black Uh, and this might be, have been where, where he brought up, it's more of the system. He's part of the system and whatnot. Um, You know, I am open to an explanation where that makes sense. And perhaps in other areas, it does. I don't buy it in that particular instance. Okay. I don't buy it in Ivy League schools. Uh, I, 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 do, I, I, don't, I don't buy it as a, as a uh, explanation for all things. And I think it's right. used as an explanation for all things. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do think it's possible in certain spheres in the country. And I have to think about, and probably should have, but I, I would have to think about it more where it might apply but i certainly don't think it applies when a black cop kills uh a uh, a a black another black person i, I just don't mm-hmm. think that can be you know chopped up to well you know that's systematic racism that even even though that you know i, I just right. i'm open to being convinced of that I, I just have not been convinced of that yet um well i,
0: I think maybe one of the things coates would say is that it's the act itself is not even necessarily racist but that it's caught up in a system that um takes certain approach to policing that is antagonistic um or that views certain um activity as um as being criminal when it, it shouldn't be and that it People are more comfortable with that because of his disproportionate effects on African Americans. Uh, you know, like I think that's that's what he would say. And I'm,
1: yeah, you yeah. know, I mean, that and that's that's better frame than I than I, I gave him credit for there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, I, you know, again, I, I probably side that I'm I'm still skeptical in the case where an African American kills another
2: African
1: American, mm-hmm. talk t- t- systematic racism. I will say perhaps his better example. I don't know if it was in the podcast, but he you know he did a, a long report on uh chicago red lines and things along those lines that uh where um blacks were not able to build wealth through owning houses because they were you know kept out of areas where housing values grew up and that has had lasting an impact and and that seems more compelling to me okay Uh, but i i'm uh you know, I really studied up for when my interview with, 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 right. Kose, so I, I I'd have to go back and, and look at his arguments um, a little closer. Um, but uh, yeah, it's an interesting, interesting debate uh, and discussion for sure. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I think that is one of the things that I think people should be arguing about in good faith um, because it, it you know, to me, like you can't, view the history of america without understanding race and racism um and it's a part of the whole the story it's the whole story but uh, it's clearly still something that we are debating and arguing over and is causing real effects so the more conversations about that that are had in good faith um to shed light on these topics the better I um so th- sort of drawing out now to kind of a a broad macroscopic view. Um, we've talked about some of the problems with Congress, um, uh, what we think about Biden, but just in terms of your overall um, outlook, we've got, I think, problems with polarization politically in the country, declining trust in institutions. Um, the, we've seen the ways in which information can misinformation can be spread very easily. Um, some people are talking about secession, even like what, what are you thinking about? Uh, uh, how are you feeling about the prospects of uh, just America staying together in some shape or form in the, in the coming decades?
1: I guess I'm very confident that America is going to stay together. I okay. I, think, I really do think some of this stuff is very unhealthy mm-hmm. and I could be wrong. I, I'm, I, I'm open to be open to be wrong, uh, but I think this is a really narrow number of people who are you know
0: i mean actually advocating for war and things like that
1: it's just insane i mean they're playing games it's almost like they're like the people that stormed the Capitol. and Mm -hmm. i don't want to dismiss it some of them are dangerous and they should be but they got riled up by radio revolutionaries to 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 talk about when you talk about revolution and civil war it's in our society right now it's i think it's become we're so We've become such a wealthy nation, we're so mm. decadent. I mean, it wasn't people that had it the worst that were storming the capital.
0: Yeah, was, yeah, that's a good point.
1: It was a lot of people who wanted to play act in a certain right. way uh, and live out this fantasy of that they're, you know, Paul Revere of some sort. And I just don't think that is a huge amount of people in the country. It's enough mm. to be worried about. It's enough to make me actually take the threat of right wing or whatever you want to call it terrorism more seriously but i don't think it is a massive amount of people that i would be actually worried about in terms of creating a civil war um, right. but perhaps i'm wrong and we'll find out in the next four years or five years later. yeah
0: well i i guess it's an interesting question legally uh, we've never really answered that question, whether it's possible to have a legal secession. Um, I, I personally don't really see a strong case for it. Um, but uh, you know, yeah.
1: I don't think anyone's really seriously, I mean, again, how many people watching, you know, Newsmax, how many people watch OAN? I mean, mm-hmm. Not many. It's, uh, it's mm-hmm. more than there were uh, a year ago by a lot, I would right. say, but probably under under a million combined average which again is probably 10 times more than it was a year ago, but you know, very small in total numbers.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, if you need to go right at three thirty, we can close it up. I just I have uh,
1: right. up some time. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, I just got,
0: I just got one more closing question, uh, which I told you about, which is, can you tell me about a time when you heard an argument from your critics and you thought, you know, you might have a point.
1: Yeah. I will not say from necessarily from my critics, but I think I do it often. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, and I um, you know, it used to be when I was young in high school, strong on uh, probably drug laws, and then mm-hmm. I read the libertarian argument by John Stossel, and I was convinced that uh, I think that argument's better. So I, I think I think it, it, I, I'm always open to the better argument. Uh, there's people who are the American greatness crowd that complain about uh, that's a publication for those who don't know, um, kind of very Trumpist complain about the over-representation of never-Trumpers on TV. Uh, I, I often ask this in my podcast because it's an argument against interest. I think they probably have some point. Obviously, they do have a point that there overrepresentation over-representation to the public at large or the Republican Party or the conservative movement at large of never-Trumpers who have TV contracts. Mm-hmm. I probably disagree with them that there's a reason for that, uh, uh, that a lot of the you know hard Trump Writers and opinion writers are not necessarily produced the type of quality arguments and work that would get you a column in the New York Times or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but I mean, the, the the point about overrepresentation, I think that is you know very true. Um, so I, I think uh, you know I don't know if that directly answers your question, but but I there have been uh, a lot of times where uh, you know I hear hear people argue something and it makes me rethink a position mm-hmm. I have.
0: Cool. All right. Well, Jamie Weinstein, thank you so much for coming on. You might have a point.
1: Oh, well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: That's all for today. If you have any feedback, please feel free to reach out. You can find my contact details in the show notes. Please also take a moment to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and take care.